This is a Salt Hill Media Originals podcast. Hello, welcome to the Galway podcast. This is Fender Jackson. I moved to Galway last September, but for two weeks in June, I came here just to hang out, scope the area out. And during that time, I came across Nora Barnacle's house on Bowling Green, which is just opposite St. Nicholas Church. And it was open. This seems to be a rare occurrence because I've never seen it open since, and I do be in that area quite a lot. It was quite something to have spent time in that humble little dwelling. I think Joyce has actually written about hanging out in the kitchen. So whenever I was thinking about Bloomsday this year, I thought it would be cool to look around and see if I could interview somebody about Ulysses and Joyce and Galway. I should explain that Ulysses is set in one day, June the 16th, 1904. And my research led me to Professor Brian Arkins. Brian is a Professor Emeritus of Classics at the University of Galway. He was educated at Clongowes Wood College and at University College Dublin, where he obtained an MA in Classics and a PhD in Latin. He is the proud author of 14 books and counting. This conversation took place on the 1st of June, and you will hear us referring to Aidan Maloney's performance, which was, quote-unquote, last night. So the reason for that delay is because I've had a few episodes in the meantime which were time dependent on other events for example we had the 50 plus show last week and age action also were at the 50 plus show so i wanted to get both of those podcasts out in time for that also you had jerry maholland's month's mind last weekend so i wanted to get that second episode out and then there's frank fahey's book launch today so i wanted to get that out to yesterday or whatever day i put it out so, yep, it's only now that I'm putting out this interview. Brian will mark Bloomsday in Galway, in Galway Arts Centre, and will present a lecture, and it will be entitled The Prototypes of Joyce's Character, Leopold Bloom. The lecture will take place on Friday the 16th of June, Bloomsday, at 6pm. It is free in. So, with the ineluctable modality of the visible. I can see that I've been talking for over two minutes, almost three minutes now. So I'm going to stop and bring you Professor Brian Arkins. Here is that conversation. This is the Galway Podcast. Hello. Hello. I'm joined with Professor Brian Arkins and we're going to discuss James Joyce and Ulysses in Galway. Indeed, yes. So Brian, how are you today? I'm very well. I slept well and I'm well on for this now. This is new to me, I have to say. I've never done this before. So it's very exciting in that sense, you know. Excellent. I mean, I'm used to speaking on the phone, obviously, to people, but not, I haven't done anything like this before. So it, it's, as I say, it's new to me. It's a new experience. Good. Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you came to be so au fait with Joyce? Yes, well, um, I grew up in Longford Town in the Midlands of Ireland, and I was sent away to boarding school in Clongoswood College in County Kildare, run by the Jesuits as a boarding school. And there, uh, apart from anything else, I learned Greek and Latin, as well as French, Irish and English. And uh, in, in the last year, 1961-62, my last year in Clongos, a priest took me aside for extra tuition in Latin. And the, the author he chose for that extra tuition was Catullus, the Latin love poet at the time of Julius Caesar. Even though I didn't know it at the time, that changed my life because I, I went on to study Catullus further at university at UCD in the 1960s. And then it what became my doctoral thesis, Sexuality and Catullus, and that was published as my first book in Germany in, in 1984. So the Joyce connection, Joyce, of course, had himself was in Clongos at the age of six and a half. Can you believe it? Six and a half, taken away from your parents and put into a boarding school. Uh, so uh, Joyce was there in Clongos and 
when I was at Clongos, you couldn't mention the name of Joyce. He was regarded as a blasphemer and a heretic and all of that stuff. But now the new library in Clongos is called the James Joyce Library. So they've come to terms with them finally, the Jesuits. And a Jesuit priest whom I know, Bruce Bradley, has written a book about Joyce and the Jesuits. And one of the things Joyce said about the Jesuits that they gave him the idea of structure, which is very important in his works how to arrange things to have a beginning, a middle, and an end structure. As you have that in Ulysses, obviously, it starts off early in the morning and ends uh, in, in the night time. Then I've worked a lot on Greek themes in modern Irish literature. Uh, I have a book, for example, called Irish Appropriation of Greek Tragedy. And uh, at the moment, um, there are up to 40 versions and translations of Greek tragedies by Irish writers in the last few decades. And no other country in the world has that level of commitment to the Greek thing. And it's partly because uh, it, it, it chimed in with changes in Irish society, feminism most obviously, so that Greek characters like Medea and Antigone uh, are seen as powerful women characters who are do not confine themselves to the male view of life. Medea, in particular, has a passage where she talks about being married and what it means for her, what it means for women. Uh, in theory, they can get a divorce, but in practice, it's very difficult for them to do that. A man can divorce a wife in 5th century Athens easily. All he has to do is send the wife away back to her own people. And uh, so that's that's Medea. So they've all done this. Desmond Egan has done two uh, Greek plays. Frank McGuinness has done five, no less, five. Uh, Brendan Canelli has done three. Marina Carr has done three. Derek Mahan has done some. Tom Paulin. All the major dramatists and poets have, have had a Greek uh, experience. So this is what is now called, within the field of classics, it's now called reception studies. That means, simply means the use of Greek and Roman material in any later era, era right up to the present time. Tell me about your adult experience with Joyce and how it formed your professional career. Well, as I say, I was involved for a long time. Now, long before it became fashionable, I was doing reception studies. My, my second book was Greek and Roman themes in Yeats. So once I'd finished that with Yeats, the obvious thing then was to do a similar book for Joyce, which I did. It was published in 1999 uh, by Lewiston Press, uh, Greek and Roman themes in Joyce. Uh, so I uh, especially noted the impact of the philosopher Aristotle on Joyce. He said to his friends, I'm an Aristotelian. <laughs> And uh, then also then Ulysses, uh, the, the Greek themes there where the, the structure is based on the Odyssey of Homer. And there are all sorts of correspondences between the characters in, in Homer, Odysseus, his wife Penelope, and his son Telemachus with Leopold Bloom and Molly Bloom and Stephen Dedalus. And I'll be talking about that in, in my lecture this coming Bloomsday uh, in the Arts Centre about the, the prototypes for Joyce's character, Leopold Bloom. These include Odysseus from the Odyssey of Homer and Ettore Schwartz, uh, who went under the, the uh, pen name of Italo Suevo from Trieste, and Joyce taught him English for several years. And Joyce praised his work. They praised each other's work. and they, So that was a second major... Uh, figure in Joyce's uh, depiction of Leopold Bloom. So you arrived at the doorstep of Joyce's work, so to speak, through the Greek entrance. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, were you exposed to his works before you were doing the Greek stuff? I was, yes, I was, yeah. Um, at school, I, uh, in the last couple of years at school, even though Joyce was persona non grata at the time, but nevertheless, I managed to get hold of Dubliners and a portrait of the artist as a young man. Uh, when people say that Ulysses is difficult, it is difficult in places, but it's also accessible in places. But before that, I, for somebody coming to Joyce for the first time, I would strongly advise them to begin with Dubliners, the short stories. And especially then, of course, the magnificent short story, The Dead, at the end, 
which has been made into a major movie with, with uh, who was that? John Huston, Angelica Huston, and Donald McGann. And so start off with Dubliners, then move on to a portrait of the artist as a young man. That's also quite accessible. You don't need any esoteric knowledge to, to, to read through that book. So, and then it's only then after that that, that you could come to Ulysses. And again, in Ulysses, there are parts of it that are very accessible and parts of it that are not accessible. As uh, um, an English poet once said, writers have the right but not the obligation to be difficult. Mm-hmm. Would it strike you as understandable if I was to tell you that I read the first third of Ulysses three times? Uh, I can understand that, yes. Indeed. Why? Well, it, it's, it's uh, so riveting, really. And also, as we saw last night, there's a great element of humor in Joyce. People don't seem to be, they're so obsessed with the difficulty that they forget about the humor. Uh, Joyce said to Ezra Pound, his friend and, and confident, I wish people would realize how funny the book is. So that's, that's another aspect of it. And that was brought out last night in, in the performance in, in the theater. Yes, we should explain here that um, last night we saw Yes, Reflections of Molly Bloom as performed by Aideen Maloney, who uh, is the late uh, Paddy Maloney's daughter. And he actually provided uh, the music for that. And it's basically Aideen coming on stage as Molly Bloom and performing the monologue uh, towards the end of the, the, the mm-hmm. novel. Okay. And um, it, I think the original, if you are to read the original passage, it would take o- over three hours to do so. Yes. So Aideen was explaining to me, as she does in the previous podcast, that she stripped it back along with Colin McCann, the author to Colin McCann. Yes. They stripped it back to the main uh, arteries of the monologue and it was performed as, as, as it was like that. So she didn't change, not a dicky bird, as she said in her own words, she didn't change one word of, of the text except to edit it. Mm-hmm. And it was... Well, it was it was over. It's close to an hour and a half of just one monologue, seven sentences. Yes, stream of consciousness. How, so, tell me about your impression of that performance. Uh, it was a wonderful performance, absolutely ecstatic uh, performance, and she was so involved in the whole thing. And there was no pause or anything, no awkward silences or anything like that. She she did went on straight on with the ninety minutes performance. And as I said, one of the things that, and you could hear at times the audience laughing, so that stressed the fact that there are funny bits in it, you know. Mm. And uh, Molly Bloom is perhaps a more complex character than is sometimes thought. I mean, obviously there's a great deal about sex in it. And she had, had, after all, had adultery with Blazes Boylan that afternoon. Uh, But as well as that, for example, she said, I used to like poetry when I was a girl. And she well, says she'd like to speak to an educated person like Stephen Dedalus, for example. And she's wondering, would he stay with them? But of course he doesn't. Stephen goes off into the night. We don't know what happens to Stephen Dedalus after he leaves Blooms. Some people you say that he went on to write Ulysses, but that's not the case because at the end of the, the, the novel Ulysses, Stephen has accomplished nothing. He hasn't written anything. And so, he, as I say, he goes off into the night and we don't know what has happened to him. In regard to the Blooms, there seems to be some su- suggestion of a reconciliation. Bloom normally brings Molly her breakfast in bed, as he, he, he did at the beginning of the novel in, in Chapter 4, Calypso. But now it's the, fo- uh, the foot is on the other foot, so to speak. He wants his breakfast in bed with two eggs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so we assume that will happen so that the Blooms, uh, there's a kind of every man aspect of this, especially in Molly Bloom, but even in, in Leopold as well, there's a the sense that they are representatives of the human race in general. Uh, Molly in particular, I think, is a kind of Gaia figure. Gaia is the Greek word for earth, that she's a kind of earth's mother, uh, not just an ordinary common or garden mother, mother but... It's, it's interesting you have discerned that. May I ask how you have arrived at that conclusion? Uh, well, it's... 
Partly because uh, of the Odyssey theme that she is, part of it is Penelope. Now, unlike Penelope, Molly Bloom commits adultery, so they're different in that way. One of the things about the interaction between past and present is that it is very complex. It can't be reduced to a single formula. So I I think uh, that the way she talks about people and the way she expresses her own experiences of people, notably Leopold Bloom, but also others, Stephen and others, uh, that singles her out as a particularly astute observer of the human condition. And in that sense, she is Gaia, the Earth Mother. Uh, The Latin word for that is telos. And she has, of course, had two children. And, and then there's the aspect of, uh, of her in regard to the moon. Her, her mother was named Lunita. The, the Latin and Italian for, for moon is Luna. So that's another connection with Molly. And as was brought out very vividly last night, she, she came from Gibraltar originally, and there's a Spanish aspect to it as well. So that's another thing. What I said to Aileen during our podcast discussion two days ago was uh, that a teacher told me one time, an actor who does not understand Shakespeare is an actor who cannot convey the meaning of Shakespeare. Yes. And it was very apparent to me that Aileen had owned that text. Yes. Not only did she convey the meaning from uh, tone of voice, facial expression, but her entire body. Yes, indeed. And it was, it was a touching meaning to every word. And a question I have for her, maybe I'll pick up with her again. Is there a part of the text that she doesn't understand and she just lets the words wash out of her? Because well, it, we have to remember, too, in all of this, that there is, uh, from a Christian point of view, the incarnation of Christ, that Christ was a man. Uh, whether he was leaving aside the f- whether he was God or not, he was certainly a man born at a particular time in a particular place, uh, which I've looked into that a great deal. And I came up with the idea that he was born in what we would call 6 AD, uh, when uh, Corinius was the governor of uh, Judea with responsibility for uh, the area around Bethlehem. And uh, the incarnation of Christ validates the human condition, even though Christian churches have often not stressed that sufficiently. They've gone off on awful tangents about, I mean, obviously the whole child sex abuse thing in the Catholic and other churches as well. And there has been a tendency since the time of Augustine in, in the fourth century to downplay the physical aspects of life, especially the physical aspects of sex, so that, that you could regard Molly Bloom as countering all of that in her uh, witty and passionate descriptions of sexual life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as I say, she was manifesting the words in a very physical way. And, yes. you know, it was is wonderful, the Spanish allusions and and so on and the lighting I I found the lighting was very subtle last night Uh, but it was enough to well actually it wasn't that subtle if you know theatre design but it's very effective it is flicking from Spain to Dublin very fast indeed indeed. absolutely as I agree with you entirely yes Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, what worked for you was for the play last night well the, the the sheer energy of it I mean that's Blake, the poet William Blake, said energy is eternal delight. And there was great energy in that performance. And and as I say then, uh, particularly striking, in addition to the energy, there was the comic aspect of it, well, the the humour. And, you know, there was somebody right behind me in in the audience who laughed loudly (laughs) a lot of the time. Yeah. So, uh, so, as I said, Joyce felt the novel was funny in ways. Oh, it's hilarious. I mean, I, I've burst out laughing many times reading it. And, um, and I'm so glad that Aileen brought the humour out, as you say, because um, I think to not have brought the humour out would have been not to have understood it. Indeed, yes. Yeah. You mentioned Shakespeare there. I've written a book on Shakespeare, on what Shakespeare stole from Rome, about the, the plays uh, Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra, and uh, Coriolanus. So Shakespeare uh, knew Latin extremely well. We no longer believe that he was some kind of peasant from God knows where. He, he was at a good grammar school in Stratford-upon-Avon where the, the whole of 
the teaching was about Latin, Latin grammar, writing Latin, speaking Latin, reading Latin. That's what the grammar referred to in grammar school means Latin grammar. So Shakespeare had all that, and we now know that he brought 600 new Latin-based words into English. Some of them did not survive, but a lot of them did survive, so that when we speak English in in an everyday fashion, a lot of the words that we use are Latin-based, and they they come from Shakespeare originally, a lot of them. Others were doing it at the same time, Marlowe and other dramatists, Johnson and so on. But uh, but Shakespeare, I was in Stratford-on-Avon one time, we saw a production of As You Like at Shakespeare, and it was a terrific production. And one of the things about it was that while Rosalind is the main character and has a lot of lines and is rightly stressed in the production, but also the minor parts, they were brought out extremely well in that production as well. So there's a lot can still be done with Shakespeare. In fact, um, since I'm mentioning Shakespeare, the two most written about authors in the world are Shakespeare and Joyce. Mm. For Joyce, we think now 15,000 items, to which I've contributed mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the connections between Shakespeare and let's talk about Ulysses specifically. Yes, well, uh, the, the main thing there is Stephen's account of, uh, of Shakespeare in uh, the library episode where he's uh, pr- producing his theories about Shakespeare to an audience that includes the librarian uh, of the library and uh, George Russell, a poet and mystic, and Buck Mulligan, who has appeared originally at the beginning of the thing, stately, plump Buck Mulligan. So he appears in that library episode as well. He appears in a comic mode, I have to say. But Stephen has this theory that Shakespeare, uh, that his wife uh, had sexual relationships with his brothers as well. And he produces that in a very elaborate way, basing basing himself on books that were written in the late 19th century about Shakespeare. He then, when he's out at the end, do you believe in all of that? He says, no, I don't. (laughs) So it's a con job, he might say. Sounds like a politician's answer, off mic. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So, um, yeah, the connections between Shakespeare and Ulysses is threaded throughout, it could be argued. Well, which plays do you think are the most relevant to uh, Ulysses? Hamlet, definitely, by far the most important. In what way? Well, that Stephen Dedalus is a kind of Hamlet figure. Hamlet uh, notoriously doesn't avenge uh, his father's death. It takes a very long time to do that. Eventually he does. But Stephen is taking a very long time to get anything done in his own life. I mean, he, he's very erudite in the Proteus episode, number three, but uh, but he hasn't really achieved anything. He, he's you know he muses on and on and an ineluctable vid- modality of the visible and all of that. This is very clever, but is it getting him anywhere? And whereas Bloom, by contrast, doesn't go in for these fancy explanations. Bloom is always trying to find out some ordinary way of solving ordinary problems. He's a great sol- a solver of problems. Leopold Bloom. The first epithet that Homer gives to Odysseus in the Odyssey is palutropos in Greek, which means much wandering. On the one hand, it can mean that, or uh, clever, it can mean that. Bloom, of course, wanders all over Dublin in, in the book, and he's clever, in, as I say, in producing recipes for this and that. So uh, Hamlet definitely is the, the key figure there, I think. Do you think Stephen is a perfectionist? Um, I'm saying that because the expression perfection is the enemy of the good yes how much does that apply to Stephen's life I think it would apply quite well to it yes but but the perfection is is empty in the sense it's getting him nowhere what has he achieved I mean we, we don't know that he has achieved anything I mean Joyce has achieved things because before Ulysses with the portrait and the Dubliners, but Stephen has not produced anything. And yet he's still the object of the desire from Molly. 
Indeed, yes, because he's educated. That's what she says. I would like to have a talk with an educated man, meaning Stephen Dedalus. And there's some suggestion that he might stay the night, but that never happens. Do you miss a loved one that's passed on? Perhaps you miss their voice or their mannerisms. Perhaps you have questions that remain unanswered. Don't let that happen to your children or grandchildren. At Salt Hill Media, we can record your life story or that of a loved one for future generations. So when someone asks, hey, what was granny like? Or what was granddad like? You can point them to an interview and say, you tell me. We can tailor an interview to be as long or as short as you want it to be, all with professional recording equipment and post-production. You may think that your life is not worth documenting. Well, not according to your children or grandchildren. Record that life story before it's too late. Email salthillmedia at gmail.com or go to salthillmedia.com for more information. This is The Galway Podcast. Last night after the production, there was a group of ladies there. They were fascinating. They started this reading group of Ulysses five years ago. Right, right. And they're halfway through the book. (laughs) I love that. So I connected with them and I've got a few questions from them. So the first one that came through, I'll just read it out now. I quote, I did first year classics and had Professor Arkins for some lectures on reception studies. How Greek studies, culture, mythology, literature has been received and used by artists, writers, etc. I would love to hear his comments on how significant Homer's influence is on Joyce's Ulysses. Thanks, Anne. That's what she says at the end. Yes, well, the, the main thing is the structure of Ulysses comes from the structure of the Odyssey of Homer. That's, as I said, when Joyce was asked about the Jesuits, one of the things he picked out was that they, they gave him the idea of structure, of a beginning, a middle, and an end of things, as Aristotle, of course, points out as well in his work, The Poetics. Then the individual characters, Odysseus, his wife Penelope, and uh, son Telemachus, in certain ways they mirror the characters of Leopold and Molly Bloom and Stephen Dedalus in, 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 the, in Ulysses. So uh, Homer was a starting off point for him, if you like. And Homer, of course, was extremely popular in the Victorian and Edwardian periods that Joyce would have been familiar with. Homer was regarded as as an encyclopedic person, as indeed Joyce can be regarded as encyclopedic as well. Uh, the, The Prime Minister Gladstone wrote several books on Homer. So Homer was in the air, and when Joyce got to Paris, Homer was very much in the air in Paris in the 1920s as well. So Homer was very readily available to, to Joyce as a, an incitement, if you like, to, to write about, about those matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about your time in, um, because she alludes to it, your time as a lecturer? Yes. Well, I, I was teaching in the classics department in Greek and Roman studies in the university. It's now called, it's a new name now, it's the University of Galway. I, I had 37 years teaching Greek and Roman studies, uh, both in translation and in the, in the actual languages, Greek and Latin. Now, the numbers in Greek and Latin were small, but the numbers in classical civilization, as we call the other subject, were quite large. First year could run to 150 people. And uh, I don't, I, I'm using a microphone now, but when I was lecturing, I didn't use a microphone. I was able to project my voice. I mean, some lecturers mutter, which is awful. And even some poets reading, they, they mutter. They don't, uh, they don't uh, project their voices properly. And uh, I did all the ordinary things that every lecturer in classics would do. Greek tragedy was an obvious thing I did a lot of. I did some Greek philosophy with Plato and Aristotle. Of course, Socrates is a great figure there who wrote nothing but had an enormous impact. And then I brought some new material into the courses. Uh, I gave lectures on the Latin poet uh, Sappho, 
from the island of Lesbos about 600 BC. She was an aristocrat and was married and had a daughter, but as well as that, she had relationships, sexual relationships with adolescent girls. We were familiar, we're all familiar with 5th century Athens, the older man and the younger of the adolescent boy. That existed on Lesbos for men, but the difference between the two places was that on Lesbos there was this other female version of all of that. Sappho was a, a kind of cultural figure for, for these adolescent girls. So, and we, we don't have a lot of Sappho, unfortunately. There was the Lord Mayor of Dublin who used to boast that he never went to bed at night without reading 12 pages of the poet Sappho. But that's, they would have to be the same pages because that's all we have. <laughs> and then, but as it happens, in, in the last couple of decades, three new poems of Sappho have been discovered. Marvellous to relate. And one was found in a German library tucked inside another book. And the reason we know it's by Sappho is because in her, her dialect of Greek, Aeolic, and her meter, which is still called Sapphic meter. So, and this, unlike her other poems, which are to a great extent um, based on love and various capacities, eros in Greek, but in this poem, which we have uh, recently discovered, it's about getting old. Her hair is no longer black, it's white. I know the feeling. She can't dance as well as she used to. And she's, like everybody else, she's going to die. You mentioned there as well that you studied French, Irish, English, Greek and Latin. Do you still understand Greek and Latin? Oh yes, I do, certainly, yeah. So you could, could you have a conversation in Latin? I, with a bit of research I could, yes. yes. And Greek? And Greek too, yes. Wow. You mentioned last night you did your first lectures in Gaelic. In, in the university here, yes. Yeah. Uh, Don't talk a little about that. Well, I, I found it very difficult because when I grew up in Longford Town, nobody spoke Irish. Uh, the only Irish you would hear in the town was in schools. And, and so when I came to live in Galway and I knew... To get the job in the university, you had to pass an oral and written Irish test in Gaelic. Uh, so I, I took some tuition. I, I had a fairly good leaving certificate in Irish, you know, not like outstanding, but it was, uh, I, I mean, I had very high marks in Greek, Latin and French and less so then, still respectable, but less so, less high in, in Irish and English. When I was presented with a piece of Latin or Greek to translate into English, with a little bit of preparation, I could do that, but not a lot of preparation, because I was very familiar with the material. But when I wanted to translate a piece of Latin into Irish, I had to have it written down. I, I couldn't add libet, as it were. Mm. I, had to, I would spend a lot of time with the dictionary. And uh, On the other hand, in my new book, uh, The Poetry of Sex from Sappho to Carl Ann Duffy, in that I have translations from two Irish poems, which I did myself. Queen Arthur Lyra, the, the lament of Arthur Lyra by his wife, Evelyn Dovney Connell, and her passionate love for him. And then Court and Vanny here, Brian Mer Merriman's satire on, on the world of courts and women. So I was able to include those in my section, in my chapter on marriage. Now, I've had this book on the go for a long time. It's only finally now being published by Peter Lang in Oxford. And uh, I should have copies within the next two weeks. Wonderful. And what's the title of the book? The Poetry of Sex from Sappho to Carl Ann Duffy. So it's a critical study. It's not an anthology. It's a critical study. And whenever you say you've spent a long time writing it, how long are you talking about? Two years we're talking about there. Uh, it's a big commitment. Are you writing anything else new? Or yes. are, you just, are you just relaxing for a little while before No, you... I'm writing a new book on Yeats. Oh, I have yeah. two books on Yeats already. As I said at the beginning, Greek themes in Yeats. And now I had a second book also with Peter Lang, the, the thought of W.B. Yeats, his ideas about society and religion and politics and so on. And uh, now in the, the new book, I'm having a, a comprehensive view of all of Yeats's work. It's called Yeats for the 21st Century. So part of what's going on there is to see what parts of Yeats are still absolutely valid and what 
what parts can be discarded as belonging to their own time and not, not to us anymore. Um, for example, in the 1930s, he, he lost the plot to some extent. And there's some wonderful poems, but some very poor poems. And uh, he notoriously was uh, associated with the Irish Blue Shirt movement in the 1930s, which was a semi-fascist organization. And uh, But he got out of that fairly quickly. But then there was something else he was into in, in the late 1930s was eugenics, the idea that the population had to be made better through controls of breeding and so on. And, and that is usually associated with right-wing people. But if you look into it, left-wing people were also uh, advocating this. So it was, it was just a horrible thing. More authoritarian than, than political uh, yes, spectrum. Yes, yes. Oh, I'll go back to the questions. Yes. This is good. It's nice to have some outside input. This is from Polly. What does it tell us about Joyce that he gave the final episode to Molly and then brackets Nora? Well, it shows the importance of women in his life, particularly, obviously, Nora. And we, we have the, the, the book about Nora by um, Brenda Maddox, for example, which... But he, he depended on Nora a great deal. She had a lot to put up with. I mean, at various times, he was given to drink a lot. Though I believe he didn't have a good capacity for drink. Why did you say that? I, I just get the feeling that after a few drinks, he kind of went off the rails a bit and had to be brought home, carried home and all that. His long-suffering brother Stanislaus helped him a lot with that. And the reason Joyce could eventually go out to eat every evening, though he didn't eat very much, he drank. Uh, the reason he could do that was because he got huge money from Harriet Shaw Weaver, his patron. Uh, we're talking now here of hundreds of thousands over the period. Uh, so uh, that was something that... Uh, otherwise, he, before that, he was very poor. As Yeats was poor growing up as well, we forget that. Yeats wasn't born into an aristocratic family by any means. His father was a barrister but didn't practice, and he was a portrait painter, a very fine portrait painter. But he, he tended not to get paid, and he, and he tended not to finish paintings. So Yeats growing up was very poor as well, and eventually he got a civilist pension from the British government, as Joyce did too. That helped a bit, but... It was the money of Harriet Shaw Weaver that really set Joyce up. And how did that uh, relationship come about? Well, she discovered uh, discovered Joyce in the sense of getting to grip with his work, with Dubliners and a portrait of the artist. And she felt that that was so good that she had plenty of money herself. I mean, she was a millionaire, really. Uh, but she used it to, to good advantage. And uh, one of the things she did, uh, as I say, is to provide Joyce with the money to go out in the evening. <laughs> so on one side, he wasn't starving, but on the other side, the balance tilted in the other direction. And so Nora had to put up with his overconsumption of alcohol. Indeed, yes. Do you think it was a tribute? Was it guilt? Why did he give the last passage to Nora, to Molly Bloom? Well, there's a... And is that a fair question? You know, is it fair to equate Nora to Molly? Um, well, up to a point it is, yes. But there's also the Penelope aspect um, as, as a wife and mother. Uh, see, Nora features throughout the book. It, the climax, obviously, is the last episode of the book, Molly Bloom, Penelope. But she has appeared in various guises throughout the book. That uh, Bloom, she's... Uh, they have breakfast in the, in the morning in episode four, and Bloom is always conscious that he, he's going to be a cuckold by the end of the day, and he tries to avoid meeting Blazes Boylan because he knows what's going to happen uh, later on in the day. And uh, then also in, in, in Molly Bloom, there is the idea that Boylan might come the next Monday as well. So all of that uh, means that Molly is a very important thing. I would regard this as a, an archetypal feminist doct doctrinaire uh, approach to, to the thing. In what way? Uh, that she is the eternal feminine, thus Ewig Weiglisch, as Goethe said. 
in Faust. Goethe um, said also, I'm the flesh that always affirms. Going back to my idea about the incarnation there. Okay, um, let's go back to these questions are coming from Joanne. Yes. Uh, she's the conduit. Yes, this is from Joanne herself. I suppose I would like a comment on the biblical slash Catholic aspect of Joyce's work in the way it affects Stephen and his artistic vision. Although Joyce stepped away from the church, nevertheless, it still informs his work and his philosophy, Jesuit education, etc. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, you can't understand Joyce at all without understanding the Roman Catholic Church that he was brought up in. Even at the beginning, the very beginning of Ulysses, when Buck Mulligan comes on, he's, he's parodying the Mass, isn't he? The opening of the Catholic Mass before the Second Vatican Council was, In Ibo ad altare Dei, I will go to the altar of God. And so Mulligan parodies that. And uh, in Stephen, of course, uh, Stephen is no longer an atheist, is no longer a theist, but he is an atheist now or an agnostic at best. But that has to be seen against the background from which he came. To be an, an agnostic, you have to uh, get rid of baggage from the past. And a lot of that baggage in, in Ulysses is from uh, Stephen uh, giving up his... Catholicism. And Bloom, of course, uh, is agnostic. He, he turns up at the end of a Catholic Mass and he said, uh, it's in Latin, good, stupefies them first for the rest. <laughs> <laughs> so Bloom actually was, his first religion was Judaism Jude. and then raised a Protestant but converted to Catholicism to get married to Molly. Indeed, yeah. So what, what, how do you approach meaning to that? Or attach meaning to that? Well, it's, it's uh, just what was convenient. Um, I don't think Bloom's conversions were very serious matters. I had a brother-in-law once who, to get married to my wife's sister, he, he became a Catholic. He said, I wear my conversion lightly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny. It, well, as you're talking there, I was just thinking about how it's almost like he used um, religion, or religion was used in his life, I should say, as a vehicle in which him to travel. Yes, and he liked the aesthetic side of Catholicism as well. Even though he was uh, arguably an atheist or certainly an agnostic, Joyce always went to the Holy Week ceremonies in Catholic churches in Trieste and elsewhere. Because he liked the music. How much of the book was written abroad? Oh, most of it. All of it was written abroad. All of it? All of it, yes. Yeah. What effect do you think writing the book from abroad, though it's based in Dublin? Well, Dublin is central to Joyce. I mean, even when he was abroad, as he was for most of his life, he was constantly pumping people in Ireland and elsewhere for details about life in Dublin. And so there's a, a new book out just now uh, by Chris Morash about Dublin as a centre of literary excellence. It's part of a series. London will also be in that series. And uh, people should, should read that book because it's not just about Joyce, but about all the Irish writers who, who use Dublin as a base. I mean, Brendan Behan is an obvious choice as well. Yeah. Some have said that Dublin is actually another character in the book. You could say that, yes, yes. In what way do you think that's true? Well, everything happens in Dublin. And when you're reading through it, for me anyway, when I'm reading through it, I know all these places that Bloom and Stephen go to. I know where they are. I know the streets they're talking about, the pubs they're talking about. So in that sense, Dublin is very much a character in the play, in the, the book, the novel. There was a lovely moment in the play last night, um, Aileen's play last night, where she refers to a street. Now, I don't know Dublin as well as you would. Uh, the illusion is that the street is a grand street and the person standing on the street is wearing very fine clothes. Mm. I think we're talking about the silk socks, etc. Oh, right. And... Um, it's lovely to have that backdrop in your mind of of Dublin. 
to yeah. help bolster the yeah. meaning of the, of the text. And of course, that applies equally well and perhaps even more so to Dubliners, the collection of short stories. I mean, I, I know the places that are in that, I know all of these places myself, because I was in Dublin in the 1960s at UCD, uh, reading classics, Greek and Latin, and UCD was at that stage in the, where the National Concert Hall is now, you know, off Stevens Green. You, you know, you know, you know Stevens Green. Yes, yes. Off that, Earlsford Terrace, just off that. That was where UCD was in my time in in, in Dublin in the nineteen sixties. And I lived in Hatch Street, just across the road from there, so I could leave for a nine o'clock lecture at nine o'clock. <laughs> there in two minutes, you know. And, and and those days, everything was still in Dublin, hadn't moved out to the suburbs. UCD, after, in due course, moved out to the suburbs, to Lorgan, where it now is. But also, Vincent's Hospital was on the green, uh, the Russell Hotel, uh, the Hibernian Hotel, the DBC Cafe, the Green Cinema, the high school in Harcourt Street. Everything was still. I never, when I was in Dublin, I never used a bus or a tram or a train or anything. I could walk within five minutes. I had a whole world, and not least the pubs at the bottom of Leeson Street, which were UCD pubs. And in those days, the the staff used to drink with the students in those pubs um, because it was before drink driving came in, when everybody drink and drove. It was commonplace. Uh, of course, uh, one aspect of that is there weren't so many cars available then uh, as now, and people didn't, there was no idea of going fast in cars. So the number of accidents was comparatively small, I think. Uh, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about Joyce's connection to Galway? Well, of course, Nora was from Galway. That, that's his big connection to Galway. And he visited Galway a couple of times. How, how did they meet? They, they met in Dublin. Nora had walked out of Galway and into D- Dublin, and she got a job as a kind of chambermaid in a place called Finn's Hotel, which is near Nassau Street, near Trinity. And uh, Joyce met, met saw her walking out one day and uh, asked her for a date, and the first time it didn't work out, and then finally they, they walked out together on June the 16th, 1904, which is why the novel is set in, on that date. So that's how they met. And then within a comparatively short short period of time, they eloped. They didn't get married until 1930s in London. So they were living, as the church would see it, they were living in sin. But it wasn't just the church. Society in general did not approve of that kind of arrangement of a couple living together who were not married. So they were constantly moving to get, get away from uh, bad situations. And of course, also, as I said, he was poor at the beginning. So they were constantly trying to avoid paying the rent. And so she was the main breadwinner or was he working? Oh, no, he was working. He, he, oh, she, she never worked after that. She was at home with the children and... Uh, uh, Joyce worked uh, as a teacher of English in the Berlitz School in Trieste. And then for a while he had a job in Rome in a bank, but that didn't last. So for most of the time he was either teaching in, in Berlitz School or and or giving private lessons as well. And that's how he survived uh, for a long, t- long period of time. Of course, uh, when the war broke out, the First World War, he moved to Zurich then to avoid being, uh, in any sense, involved in the war. Stanislaus was uh, interned during the First World War in Vienna. Uh, so as in, in Zurich, he wrote most of Ulysses. And what effect do you know the war had on Stanislaus? Uh, well, he was in a very bad situation. He, he just survived it, as, as they all had to do. But uh, speaking of internment, my father was interned uh, by the Free State Government because he was a solicitor and he opposed the the treaty with Britain. And he was, for some time, he was in, detained in the current by the Free State Government. This is 1923, I suppose. Eventually, he was let go like they all were, but uh, he, when he became county registrar in Longford, he couldn't have political views anymore. It was above politics. 
So, but on the other hand, the paper we took every day was the Irish Press, which was De Valera's paper. So there was that that mm-hmm. element still there. Yeah. Wow. So back to Joyce and Galway. He met Nora in uh, went for their first date in June the sixteenth, nineteen oh four. In nineteen oh four. Yeah. And so, did he have much connection with Galway before nineteen oh four? Do you know this? No, I don't think so. No. So know. after that, how often would he have spent here? How much time? Yeah, there's, 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 there's accounts of him actually being in, in Nora Barnacle's house. Is that correct? Yes, it would be. Yes, that's correct. Yes. And another aspect of Joyce, we forget that he had he was in charge of the first cinema in Dublin uh, with partners from Trieste. But that that started off, it didn't work out very well in the end, so they had to abandon it. But uh, he was, in a certain sense, ambivalent about Ireland. I mean, on the one hand, he detested the whole... Uh, situation that was controlled completely by the Roman Catholic Church and the British state government. On the other hand, uh, he had great pleasure in depicting all of that so that uh, he, he was involved in it in a particular way. And uh, as I say, um, Catholicism is central to uh, Joyce uh, affected to despise Protestants because they weren't logical, but <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he was dealing with the logical thing of Roman Catholicism in Ireland. And uh, I mean, when I was growing up, I mean, I, in Clongos, I served Mass and all that uh, in Latin, and uh, as one does, and nobody thought anything of it. And my parents. I don't know. My mother in her latter years was quite religious. She went to Mass every day. But but when I was growing up, that was not the case. Um, my father w- went to Mass on Sunday like everybody else. In fact, in a small community, if you didn't go to Mass, you were singled out for a program. Uh, so I, well, I don't know whether my father really believed in it or not, but he had to go through the paces anyway, as every, everybody else did as well. And that's all gone now, obviously, and uh, the attendance at, at church has gone down drastically in the last couple of decades. But it was a particular form of Catholicism here. Um, for example, the uh, the strong anti-sexual emphasis on Catholicism in Ireland was not really matched in continental Europe. There was a certain amount of it, but not to the same extent in French. The French knew about L'Amour, as Ireland did not want to know about L'Amour and Eros, love, sexual love. And uh, it was said that if, if a, a politician in France didn't have a mistress, there was something wrong with him. <laughs> and why do you think that difference occurred? What's the difference in the culture of France and Ireland? Well, they were just more forgiving of sexual misdemeanors. Uh, whereas in Ireland, that was not the case. Mm-hmm. And, of course, another aspect of all of that is censorship. We haven't talked about that. Joyce, uh, when the Ulysses first came out, it was censored uh, in, in England and in America. And it was never censored in, in Ireland. But on the other hand, you could, it wasn't banned in Ireland, but you couldn't get it. It was very hard to get hold of a copy. It was all under the carpet kind of stuff. But uh, so it was several years, uh, decades, uh, a decade or more for Ulysses to be freely available in, in England and America. And it was very controversial from the start. There were people who felt that uh, it was uh, too difficult or too, too much obscenity. Though, in fact, by modern standards, there's very little obscenity in Joyce. It looks very tame now compared to what you can get on the internet or whatever. Whenever I think of Joyce lately, I've been thinking of cubism. And I've been thinking about how cubism offers different angles of looking at something, uh, looking at the same object in different ways. Yes. So do you think cubism actually had an effect on his writing or do you think he was not aware of it? What's your feeling? I don't think he was aware of cubism, no. So this was just um, 
parallels running, but uh, probably having some bleed over from outside influences affecting uh, each other's work. Indeed, yeah, indeed, I would believe that to be the mm. case. Yes. Just on that, whenever I'm thinking of cubism, I'm also thinking about modern video editing. Well, there was the, the 1972 streak movie of uh, Ulysses. Um, I was working in, in Cardiff at that time, and it was banned in Cardiff, the movie. But down the road in Newport, 10 miles down the road, you could go to it. So I, with a friend of mine, we got a bus and uh, hopped off to Newport to see it, you know. Uh, in that, Milo O'Shea played Bloom in that film, and he was very good, certainly. But I felt that the character playing Stephen was far too English. He had a completely English accent, and he, he was far too tame, I thought, for Stephen. Do you want to talk a little bit about, um, you've talked about your book, and do you want to talk a bit more about your upcoming lecture? Yes, um, well, as I say, it's the prototypes, the two prototypes, the two main ones, there are a couple of other ones as well, but the two main ones are Odysseus from the Odyssey of Homer and uh, Italo Suevo's work, uh, The Confessions of Zeno, is a, work, a lot, very long work, which is in a modernist mode. And uh, as I said, Joyce taught uh, Suevo for, eight, I think, about eight years English, Suevo was sort of a family, a rich family that had a particular type of paint that was used for ships to, to get rid of seaweed and corn and all that kind of thing. And uh, so he was a wealthy man, but he had two, previously published two novels which were ignored and they were in the Tredestine dialect of Italian, which is what Joyce himself spoke at home for a long time. And uh, then, then came the Confessions of Zeno, and Joyce uh, reacted very quickly and uh, in, a, in a very helpful way towards Suevo at that point. He, uh, he praised the, the novel in, in high terms, and they then spent a lot of time talking about each other's works, uh, Joyce's Ulysses and Italo Suevo's uh, The Confessions of Zeno. And do you have any other works in the pipeline? Well, I hope to write a book on, on Hopkins eventually. I, every year I go to the Hopkins School in, in Newbridge in Kildare. And uh, Hopkins, of course, ended up as professor of Greek in UCD. And his last five years were spent there. And the thing about Hopkins was that he was a major poet, as we would now say, perhaps the major poet of the Victorian period, but he wasn't published during his lifetime. He died in 1889. He wasn't published till 1918. So there was some 30 years, uh, 30 years uh, gap. And by that time, he became very popular in the next 10 years or so in Oxford due to various people promoting him there. And gradually, the, the first edition didn't sell out for 10 years. But gradually, as the 1930s went on and afterwards, he became very popular. Often now, Hopkins is on the Leaving Certificate English, English program here. So we have this summer school every, every July, and there's a youth program as well, where they, they study not just Hopkins, but poetry in general. And, and it's very popular. They, they have to put a limit on it, about 20 students of 17 or so in that program, the youth program. But then there are people from all over the world come. This year, there's people coming from Japan, from Italy, from America, from England, from Paris, from Sardinia. So it's very international. And it is presided over uh, now by Desmond Egan, the poet. Uh, he's in charge of it still, even though he's 86 now. Uh, and I've written a book of, of about him, a critical study of Desmond Egan as well, which I feel he doesn't get the... Uh, the praise he, he deserves in this country. He's very popular on the continent. He's been translated into some 20 languages. And he's very popular in America as well. He got an honorary doctorate in America, but not so much here. And the same applies to another Irish poet. I've written a book about James Liddy, who was a barrister by profession, and it became professor of English at the University of Milwaukee in Wisconsin. And he uh, he has some 
he was a gay. He said, I'm Irish, Catholic, and gay. <laughs> and and uh, he has some very fine uh, sexual poems in, in his work. So I published 14 books altogether. I was going to ask you that. So 14. Yeah, 14. Uh, and counting. And counting, yeah. <laughs> so you want to do a book on Hopkins? Yes, yeah. And what would be your angle? To see him as a poet of Catholic energy. As I said before, energy is eternal delight. A lot of religious poet, poetry has no energy and it's, it's lifeless, it's just tedious. But Hopkins has great energy. For example, he says, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Mm-hmm. That sort of approach to things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So, Professor Brian Arkins, we've had a wonderful chat. It's, <laughs> we've just gone over, we've just gone about an hour, so um, I feel that I, I should stop it here because it's, okay, a, that's fine, it's yeah. a nice number. But thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Brian, it's been wonderful. Uh, I thank feel, you. This is an entirely new experience for me. <laughs> yeah, and, and the beautiful thing about podcasts is that, you know, this conversation has had its own feel about it. Uh, we've dug into some rabbit holes that we didn't yeah. plan and we probably left some mounds that we should have dug but that's the nature of conversation yeah. and arguably there's probably parallels in this podcast and Ulysses indeed indeed why not <laughs> why not okay, okay Brian. and people can come and see you uh, on the 16th of June, June in the, the Arts, Arts Centre in Galway 6pm 6 6pm 6 that's right we, we found that out last night on the, on the website so Brian thank you very much I'll say goodbye to you thank you very much thank you very much indeed indeed and absolutely this has been a Solid Hill Media original podcast and production <laughs>